millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hello? What's all this? What's this music? This isn't the Murder Mile music, you're probably thinking. And then you're probably thinking, hmm... That sounds like Michael's voice. But it doesn't sound like his voice. It sounds different. And you'd be absolutely right. Uh, This is not a regular episode of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. Welcome to Murder Mile, as I'd normally say. Um, This is episode 21, The Extra Mile. What we're going to do over these next two episodes is tell you the story behind Murder Mile and also give you some interesting facts and details about how Murder Mile came about and the stories within the series. So, if you are a new listener to Murder Mile, (laughs) don't start with this episode, whatever you do, because you'll think to yourself, "Mm, what's this? This sounds really weird and I don't like it. This is not how a regular episode is, is what it's like. So if I was you, I would either go and listen to episode 20, which is the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko. It's the it's the poisoning of a spy using radioactive polonium-210. Really good story. Um, or if you want to kind of... Uh, a, a, a story that uh, Murder Mile is more about, we'd try... Uh, the Murder of Ginger Ray, episodes 8 and 9. It's the unsolved murder of a Soho prostitute back in the mid-1940s. And using the original police files, we investigate that case. And we try and find out who a murderer really was. That could be an interesting one. Or, if you like stories about men who are obsessed with masturbation, go to episode 16, the story of Richard Rhodes Henley. It's baffling. It really is. Or if not, go right back to the start of the series. Um, go to episode one, the Denmark the Denmark Place fire. It's one of Britain's worst mass murders uh, and it's untold. And it really does sum up the series. Uh, but for regular listeners, this is a special one-off episode. I say one-off, but we're doing one next week. It's a special two-off episode just for you. Although there's quite a few thousand of you so it's just for you so where am i today i'm sitting inside my uh recording studio as i like to call it now uh you probably listen to murder while and think oh the sound quality is really good um it is i try my really hardest to make it as good as possible but i don't actually sit in a recording studio right now i'm sitting in front of a laptop and in front of that is a black condenser mic, which many, it's a Yeti, which most podcasters use, and li- a little pop filter, so you don't hear me go, pop, 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 
pop, pop, pop, pop, pop, make all those horrible little sounds. Uh, but this episode is entirely unscripted, which is why I sound different. Uh, there is no script. It won't be edited. There won't be sound effects. Um, my recording studio. Not in a studio. Uh, <laughs> I actually live on a canal boat on uh, the canals in London. There's one big canal that goes through London. It's, it's the Grand Union, which becomes the Regent's Canal, which becomes the River Lee. I live on a, a 50-foot steel canal boat on the ca- on the canal uh and it's really nice it's a nice place to be i'm sitting in my living room at the moment uh which is about four ten feet by four feet uh it's wood paneled on the right hand side is kind of a black stove where i can put coal in and logs and at night it gets very hot and i put a nice stew on top and this is where I sit here. I do my writing. I do a lot of my research when I'm not in, in the National Archives and in the libraries. And this is where I record uh, the series. Um, it's noisy outside. You will hear extraneous noise that normally I would delete out. Uh, it's rainy outside. And if you can hear that, there's some prick over the road with a chainsaw. It happens. Really, I swear, it's not a mass murderer. It's just some knob. It sounds like he's cutting up logs. Uh, so uh, we'll put up with that. But because it is uh, the extra mile, we will just entirely ignore that and we'll just carry on with what we were going to do. So you're probably asking, how did Murder Mile begin? That's an interesting story. Um, I started many years ago. It was an idea as a child. I came up with loads of ideas of things I wanted to do with my life. Uh, always wanted to be a writer. Always loved trying to write different things, whether trying to write films or plays or things like that. Never never really sent them out to anyone. You know what it's like? You kind of write things and then you hide it away in a drawer and you think, mm, it's not good enough. I don't want people to see it. Um, but as a kid, I came up with the idea for Murder Mile. I wanted to do a guided walk uh, around around London, showing people kind of interesting murder cases that exist. Uh, but it was just you know, one of those ideas that I never thought I'd, um, I'd ever do. I'm going to have a cup of tea. That's not a sound effect. That really is me having some tea. I know. Mmm, lovely. Um, one of the, the first things I actually wrote was a play. I did this at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, I'd actually spent a good couple of years working for the BBC, uh, working in their comedy department, deciphering loads of uh, scripts. So if you've watched um, any sitcom or sketch show, sketch show between 2004 and 2013 uh, on the BBC, I probably had something to do with that. I apologise. Uh, <laughs> some awful, there's some real corkers, some real absolute stinkers. But I apologise for that. Um, anyway, I worked in that job and it's one of the most soul-destroying jobs. If you're, if you're a wannabe writer and you have to sit down and trawl through thousands of scripts every year, most of which are shit, in order to find the one programme that will end up on telly. That chainsaw is really annoying. Um... So uh, one of, part of my job is I'd get sent to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival every year. That's like a fantastic uh, festival where loads of writers and performers showcase their new shows. You get comedians, you get playwrights, you get artists. It's, it's, it, if you've never been to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, it's fantastic. Um, and as part of my job for the BBC, I used to go there and review different uh, writers and performers and to see whether the executives, the people who were higher up than me, who actually had the money and the power, um, could actually turn these into to, you know, turn these into TV series. I've been at the festival there in 2008. I'd been there for about a month. I used to watch 10 to 12 shows a day, 10 to 12 hour long shows a day. It was exhausting. I came out of one show. It wasn't particularly good. And uh, I went, well, that was shit. And then all of a sudden I had a weird epiphany. All of a sudden I thought, how dare I say that? How dare I come out of someone's show that they've worked really hard to do? And even though I didn't enjoy it, I was like, do you know what? I couldn't do what they did. I couldn't perform what they did. I couldn't write what they did. I've tried and I've failed so many times. So then me being me, I'm always the kind of person who pushes themselves I decided there and then, I said, right, 
This time next year, I'm going to come back to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I'm going to put on a one-hour play written by me, starring me, never written before, never acted before, never directed before, and I will put it on for the whole month. That's a pretty tall order. So I sat down, I wrote a play. It was a very black love story, very dark love story about a modern-day cannibal who falls in love with the girl who was to become his final meal. It is very dark, it is very weird. Uh, and you've probably noticed a kind of weird trait going through Murder Mile. Of kind of most of these stories aren't just murder cases, it's, it's all about the love story, it's all about people's lives, it's about how, how they are pushed to the brink of becoming the person that they never wanted to be. Because if you think about it, murderers don't start out as murderers. All of us start out as normal people. It's just something happens. Something tips them over the edge. Something something turns a lovely, innocent child. And whether through child abuse or alcohol or drugs or, or you know, just having a really awful life, they become a murderer. And I find that fascinating. So Murder, uh, Moz and the Meal, which is my first play, um, was about how far you would go for love. And this is about... A guy who is forced by the lady. He falls in love with a lady who basically wants to be eaten by a cannibal. That's her dream. It's a story called Moz and the Meal. Uh, I hadn't got any actors. I hadn't got any money. I hadn't got any props. I'd got a stage which I swear was triangular. And it was probably three foot by two foot. In a room that housed about 50 people. It was really hot. Had bad sound. Bad air. Um... And what I did was I I made a pretty pre-organized like soundtrack behind it with with music and sound effects and other voices. And I interacted with that sound soundtrack. It took me about five months to rehearse because it was if you miss a beat, the, the, the entire show collapses. Um, and I like to refer to Moss and the Meal as a modestly successful failure. Didn't get any reviews. Uh, sometimes people walked out. Sometimes people... Uh, one person threw up. One person passed out. That was the effect of the sound effects. Because in order to create the sound of the main character, Moz, the cannibal, actually eating uh, his the woman he loves, that's the, how he shows how that he loves her. He eats her body. I created every individual sound of him eating her flesh you could hear the skin ripping and the sinew and the bones snapping i created every single sound so although the the story wasn't that good and a lot of people fell asleep and walked out uh that was actually the kind of minor success of it and i actually really enjoyed the the experience of putting on a play putting on something i'd written something that had no longer was something hidden in my drawer it had become something that existed it was out there and some people actually did enjoy it. I actually had a producer at the end of the run come up to me and say, I love it. I, it's one of the top five shows I've seen at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And he was a producer I really admired. So um, he gave me two options. He said, you can either rewrite it for telly or we'll do it. We'll rewrite it and I'll direct it uh, next year. Uh, I decided to write it as a sitcom. I thought it would be good. Um, we didn't go anywhere further with that because I... I I don't think I had the skills to turn it into a sitcom. Um, but that gave me the the impetus to think, right, I want to write another show. So for the next four years, I wrote a one-hour play every year at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival that I'd performed for a whole month. Um, and do you know what? Some of them were good, some of them, some of them were bad. One of them I got a couple of four-star reviews for. Others I just got no reviews because they were awful. But you know what? Sometimes sometimes you you have to make mistakes. You have to make mistakes in order to learn, to develop, to be, grow as a person. And I think I made a lot of mistakes in those shows. But I learned a lot, which is what which I brought over into Murder Mile. I think it's about dark, dark love stories. I love I love learning about people's lives. I love dialogue. I love which is why Murder Mile is a very narrative experience. It's not 
I, I love true crime, but I don't think I could sit down and talk to you and say, on this day, this man killed five people. It's just boring. I'd rather tell you a story and I'd rather drag out the tension and the suspense and really kind of squeeze every ounce of terror out of you. Do you know if because there's something beautiful about making making you laugh and then making you cry and then making you laugh again. I think I think it, that's hard to do when you're just explaining to someone the bare bones of a, of, of a murder case. Whereas if you're storytelling, you can really invest in people's lives and I think people want to be entertained that's what true crime is it's storytelling and I think too often a lot of people forget that which is why Murder Mile is all about storytelling that's it so how did I get to Murder Mile from that point well this is where things go a bit rotten um, everything was going well at work. I didn't really enjoy my job at the BBC, but one of the scripts I had written had been picked up by a great producer who wanted to turn it into a TV series. That was one of the biggest bonuses in my life. It was so exciting. I'd, it's such a well-respected producer, and he gave me such amazing notes, and that was the highlight of my life. And I was about to be made redundant anyway, and I thought, you know what? Sod it. You can hear that sound going past, there's a boat going past. I really do live on the canal, that's not a sound effect. Uh, this producer, he was like, he gave me such great notes. We were moving forward with a project to turn it into a TV series. Really enthused me. I, I've never felt so good about writing ever in my life. Um, that project, project fell apart. It happens, that happens with TV. But by that point, I was like, right, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to sell my flat. I had a really nice flat in West Ealing, nice top floor flat overlooking a park. Uh, quit my job, nice well-paying job. Um, going to get rid of all of my savings. I'm going to buy a canal boat. I'm going to live the life of an, of an impoverished writer. So going from earning like 40, 45 grand a year to earning, I think in my first year I earned from writing, I earned 50 pounds. Uh, and... I had no idea how tough it was going to be. It was really exhausting. And the worst thing is when... When you sit there and you're staring at a screen and you know that what is going to come out of your fingers and your brain is what's going to earn you money to, to so you can eat, so you can live, so you can have a social life just everything everything has to come out of your fingers and your brain and you have to sit and create it can be really stressful and I'd never experienced that before because before it was all fun and now all of a sudden it was a business it was money and also I had the pressure of having left a successful job where I would decide on other writers futures now all of a sudden Everyone was looking at me and going, this guy's left a successful career in order to write scripts. And after about a year, I hadn't written anything. In fact, for three of those months, I remember very clearly sitting in the engine bay in the boat. It's one of the smallest areas in there. It's probably about three foot wide by three, three foot wide by probably three foot high. And I'd sit there on a little cushion with my laptop and a cup of tea. Try to write. And I'd spend, I remember spending three months staring at the flashing cursor on the screen. Literally going, bah, 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 And I remember sitting there nine till six. And I did that for three months. And sometimes I'd write a line and then I'd delete it. And things were getting really difficult. And then life got worse. Then life got worse, as it always does. It does with life. Things just creep up on you. Um, not only was I struggling, I had no money, and uh, I was really stressed out. Uh, at the same time, uh, my mum, uh, mum has battled with uh, mental illness pretty much her whole life, I think, with uh, depression. And uh, But by this point, we, we'd worked out that mum was also, mum had also got Alzheimer's. Um, so at the same moment having writer's block and a lot of stress all of a sudden I had to 
sort out mum's life because mum couldn't deal with anything anymore had to put her into numerous psychiatric institutions because her, her Alzheimer's was more extreme and she was quite violent and uh, things like that uh, and and also my, my gran had Alzheimer's at the same time and she lives in an entirely different country and we were trying to work out how to deal with mum and gran at the same time and uh, do you know what I'm not I'm a person who deals with pressure and stress really easily but all of a sudden I I, I think it crept up on me and I remember lying in bed I was lying in bed for about five days uh, I didn't get out of bed uh, I felt really exhausted uh, I couldn't get out of bed so much that literally I had a bottle to drink from and a bottle to urinate in that's how bad I could not get out of bed and I was I was like I went to the doctors and I was just like doctor look I, I haven't slept in seven days but I'm exhausted what is going on and he said to me do you you're under any stress at the moment I went no which is me that's what I do I don't have stress I don't deal I, I deal with stress I, I just like I just carry on I, I, I find ways around it I've never had stress in my life and he said uh, do you have any stress stress in your life? And I went, eh, well, you know, got made redundant, moved out of my house, moved onto a boat, entire new change of life. Mum's got Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, Gran's got Alzheimer's, and I've got writer's block. And he went, yeah, it sounds like you're depressed. And I laughed. I was like, what? It's impossible. I don't get depressed. It's something I do. anyone who knows me knows I do not get depressed. I just deal with stuff. Uh, but unfortunately, it had. It had crept up on me. And... I'm one of the most unlikely people to get it, and it it, it got me. Uh, and I knew I had to do something about that. Mum said depression all of her life, and it, the doctor offered me medication. I was just like, do you know what? No. Mum's had been on pills all of her life, and it's never once done her any good. So I was like, I'm a proactive person. I'm going to get myself through this. Now, you're probably working, trying to think how, how do we get to the murder mile bit well this is actually even though this was the depth the worst moment in my life so far I would say this is also one of the best moments in my life because it's it's this point where I kind of rewrote my life I kind of all of a sudden I, I worked out who I was I, I'd spent years working for a big company not particularly enjoying it doing things to please other people and never once really going after my dreams and my goals and really doing everything that I wanted to do so um I knew I had to get out of depression so I sat down I went right here's my list I'm going to change the way I eat I'm going to only eat good fresh fruit fruit vegetables uh fish things that are good for your brain no more junk food Secondly, I'm going to get rid of alcohol and coffee, any kind of stimulants or antidepressants, any kind of stimulants or depressants. They really shouldn't be in your system. I'm only going to drink fruit juice and water. Also, more importantly, I'll, I'll get myself into a good routine. So no more lying in bed. I was like, right, I'm waking up every eight o'clock in the morning. I will wake up. I will get out of bed. Um, it was normally actually, actually, no, every morning I'll get up at 7 a.m. And I'll start working at 8 a.m. on the dot. And I will do an hour of work. So 50 minutes every hour. And then I'll take a 10-minute break. And I'll do that in a loop for, for the whole day until the end of the day. So I'll do 50 minutes of creative writing. Didn't have to be anything specific. Didn't have to be for a goal. It was just about free association. It was about just getting your feelings on paper. So what I would do was write things that would make me angry that would make me happy that would make me joyous just to get things on the paper and I'll try and write 500 words a day over that hour which isn't a lot but when you're depressed and you've got writer's block that is a lot then I'll do an hour of reading I'll do an hour of painting I'm not a very good painter but you know what it's joyous I would do an hour of exercise I'd take myself off on walks I'd give myself a whole full day of things to do so that I, I just keep myself busy it was about distraction really by distraction and routine and into that routine I knew I needed to write two things so one was a book I wanted to write the secret was I was not going to show it to anyone it was just going to be for me so it can be as good or as bad or as 
I could be indifferent, but as long as it was a book that I kind of, it was in my heart. It, I was writing from the heart. I actually finished that book about a year ago. It took me three years. Um, I think it's one of the best things I've ever written in my life. Um, I love rereading it. It might, I might send it out. You might hear about it soon. It's called Nothing Is Impossible. It's about, it's the art of doing nothing. Uh, in my last job, I really didn't do any work in those final years because I hated the job so much. I deliberately would find ways to make it look like I was busy when really I was doing bugger all, uh, especially in that last year. Uh, any of my ex-colleagues who's listening to this, yes, I really did fuck all in that final year. Uh, you will read about it in the book. So that book was one way to help me get out of uh, depression. The other one was Murder Mile. Why did I start Murder Mile? Literally to get me out of depression. That was it. I needed something to distract myself. I needed something that wasn't creative like writing a book, but it was research. I needed something factual. I remember the idea as a kid when I was really young, coming up with the idea of Murder Mile, a kind of a um, a kind of an anti-Jack the Ripper. On Jack the Ripper tour, you tend to walk a little bit too far and you see locations which don't exist anymore. And anyone who knows me knows that many of the theories to do with Jack the Ripper are bullshit. They really are. They're really cherry-picked. So what I wanted to do was a very factual tour, uh, very contained in a small area. So I came up with Murder Mile, which is um, 12 murderers across 15 locations, totaling 75 corpses, all within a one-mile walk in just two hours. That was my plan. I started researching cases. Uh, I only picked West, the West End and Soho literally because I'd worked there for many years. I knew the streets. I've been on the streets. I've been to loads of the pubs. I knew locals. But I didn't know any, any murders in, in Soho at all. I didn't know one. So this project could have been a massive failure. But actually, that was kind of a bonus for me because it meant I had to dig deep. I didn't I wouldn't pick the easy murders. It's too easy if you're if you're interested in true crime to go. Let's talk about Ted Bundy. Let's talk about John Wayne Gacy. Do you know cases that people have dealt with so many times? It can be so boring and soul destroying when you. it's like another article you have to read about another serial killer who you already know all about. Whereas this forced me to start digging and just cases I'd never heard of. Literally cases I'd never heard of. So, for example, episode one, Denmark's, Denmark Place Fire. That came out of nowhere. That literally did. When I was actually researching the, uh, the original tour, this was like three years ago, maybe three and a half years ago, um, I was talking to a local in a pub. I like going to pubs. I like talking to people. It's what I do. Uh, talking to a local, uh, and I told him what I was doing. I was investigating murder cases within Soho, and he was like, uh, "Wasn't there? Wasn't there a uh, a nightclub that caught fire on Poland Street?" Now, I'd never heard of, of this at all. He was a local. He only knew bare facts. Um, to be honest, he was wrong. It wasn't on Poland Street, and technically, it wasn't a nightclub. Um, but I wrote it down in my book and thought. Let's look into that. Now, the Denmark Place fire is one of Britain's worst mass murders. And yet even the locals don't know about it. I was shocked by it. I'd never heard of this in my life. Um, I went digging, went to the National Archives. That file is closed for 97 years. So you can't get access to those files until January 2079. By which time I will be 103 years old. Um, and because it was uh, the story of uh, an illegal nightclub amongst of which many illegal immigrants went there. And also this was a story that kicked off at the same time as Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. This story was erupting a massive story up in Bradford where a man had literally been murdering prostitutes. It's a horrific story, and it was huge and sensational across the news across the whole world. But it happened at the same time as the Denmark Place fire. 
And because this building was full of illegal immigrants, um, and none of them were famous, basically it's, it's a story that entirely got ignored. And I was just really upset by that. I felt this is a story that needs to be told. So how was I going to research it? This was a nightmare. Um, because there's very few news articles and what there was it was just sparse and the information was wrong as well um and because it was an illegal nightclub that made it even harder to pin down because there's no official documentation even the original uh, police fire brigade incident report actually listed it as the wrong address because someone called them up and said there's a fire on Denmark Street. And it wasn't. It was on Denmark Place, the street behind. So so the number was entirely wrong. But in order to investigate this case, I had to really think on my feet. I had to think in a new creative way. And this was a great way of learning how to get into uh, Murder Mile. Thinking in a new way. So I had a list of the victims. One of them was called Hernan Vargas. Uh, I found information on him in a book about the history of underground salsa music in London. It was like, it barely mentioned the, um, it barely mentioned the fire at Denmark Place, but what it did was it gave me a, an insight into the life of Hernan Vargas, the DJ. How he'd come from Colombia, um, there was a, um, the Department of Employment in Britain were recruiting a lot of people from uh, Latin American countries to come over to Britain to work in hotels, uh, obviously at a cheaper price uh, for for less wages. Um, but he so he would work sixteen hours a day in a dead end job. But he loved salsa music. He was a DJ. He had a huge collection of music that no one in London had heard before. Salsa was just erupting. It was one of the first salsa clubs. Um, so I learned about the club through him. Well, through his memory, really, what was written about him. Also, um, people who've lived in London for many years will remember that between 1970 and 2000s, there used to be lots of hot dog vendor carts on the street these kind of uh, steel trolleys with gas canisters in where they'd cook up with horrible hot dogs with onions on the street, all of which are illegal. Uh, and there used to be wars between rival gangs and gangsters over who had what patch, who was on Oxford Street, who was on Regent Street, that kind of thing. Um, that became useful because many of the hot dog vendors parked their hot dog trucks in the basement on the ground floor of Denmark Place, 18 Denmark Place, which contributed massively to the fire. Because when the building caught fire, the hot dog vendor trolleys caught fire, and each of them had 13 kilo propane bottles, all of which exploded. So that was useful. I talked to firefighters who were at the scene. I met with locals who weren't there on the night, but who had visited the club. They were able to tell me the size of the club, the shape of the club, what materials were there, how the room was really thin. It had one entrance door in and out and that was it. People were sat on little narrow benches. So if you wanted to get out, you had to shuffle along the bench to get out, which is why it was a death trap. And everything was made of wood. It was tinder dry. It had been a hot summer. The fire escape only went as far. It went from the top floor to the first floor but not to the ground floor so which is why many people died that night it's a fantastic story and that really gave me an insight into how to start investigating these cases cool dear i tired myself out with that one i'm gonna have a cup of tea there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And I think that was the, that was the prototype for the story. So although I only do I do a little bit of the Denmark place fire on my tours, that's what I love about the podcast is it gives me a chance to really dive into people's lives, into the, the full details of their life, um, which I absolutely adore. So what makes a good story? Well, this is what it's about. This is what I love with Murder Mile is it's about the personal story. It's about people's journeys. I think it's too easy to sit down and say, these are the details of the case. Someone killed 15 people. They chopped up their bodies, put them in a bath, tipped acid on them. I think it's just too easy. Too easy. And also you're missing a trick by not engaging with the suspense and the excitement of a story. Really dragging, not dragging out a story, but really making people believe in it. And I think what's important for me is to make you sympathise with the victim. So, uh, Denmark Place Fire as well. I, I tell you what, let, let me do a different example. So, um, The Baby Batterer, episode three, Baby Batterer of Bedfordbury. Now, this was a case that I found in the Old Bailey records. They actually have transcribed all of their records up until 1913. So, not a lot of uh, um, current cases, but actually you get the original court transcripts from pre that that era. And this was the story of two-year-old Thomas James Mills, who was beaten to death by his alcoholic father, James John Mills. Seemed like quite a simple story on the surface. Uh, alcoholic father with depression uh, during 1913 beat his two-year-old son to death. It was a very short case. There was only about a page and a half worth of information at the National at the uh, the Old Bailey, uh, and on paper it just looks like he had beaten him to death. But through that case, I was able to learn more about James John Richardson, the father. And yes, he was an alcoholic. He was struggling with alcoholism. Yes, he was struggling with depression in an era where there literally was no help for people with depression or mental health services at all. Um, also, so he was really struggling and all of the core evidence said he was a good, devout father. He was loving. He he had no money, but he bought his son a toy and he kept taking it on for walks and he was always cuddling and loving the boy. And I thought, that doesn't sound like a man who would beat his child to death. And I, what I wanted to do with this case was introduce you to the other side of his personality. The side that the most of the documentation and the, the newspapers don't tell you about. They just say, man beat child to death. So what I did was I sat down, I looked into his life, I looked into how hard it is to be a uh, a porter in Covent Garden in the 1900s. I didn't have information on his life, but I could use other people who had a similar job and compare it. Also looked into the history of street gin, which uh, because water in London, you, you didn't have water from the taps. It was so polluted. It was full of, literally full of poo. And people were dying of cholera. So most people would drink alcohol. Even children would drink alcohol all the time. Instead of drinking water, it was safer because it was boiled. Street gin was made, but street gin was made with acid. It was made with urine. It was made potato skins. It was just horrible. And people would drink it and they would go insane off it. And that's what he would drink. And although this was the information that led to his eventual uh, his arrest and his trial and eventually him being committed to an asylum. I thought there has to be more into why he killed his child. And I knew about the, ninth, uh, the 1834 Poor Law Amendment Act, which was a bizarre law that wanted to force women into marriage. And what it said was that if if 
two-year-old Thomas James Mills's mother, who was called Lavinia Mills, because she was unmarried, if she couldn't afford to look after her child, i.e. give it good food and look after it medically and things like that, the child would be put into the workhouse. And the workhouse is essentially a pauper's prison where children and adults are forced to work 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, and your chance of survival is slim. Like, life in those days, a child under five, the mortality rate was 75%. But if they got put into the workhouse, it was above 90%, which means there's, there's a nine in ten chance that they would die. It was horrific. And I knew that this, this was kind of... You wouldn't want your child to end up that way, end up in that kind of life. And she was working five five jobs in order to support the family. So this is where gut instincts came in. I knew about the Poor Law Amendment Act and I thought, I wonder if the beadle of the parish turned up that day. Now, if you've read Oliver Twist, Mr Bumble is the beadle of the parish and he's the big, fat, jolly fellow with the suit. He's not really jolly, he's a bit of a prick. uh, Who turns up and he decides that Oliver Twist has to be put into the workhouse. He's kind of the law. He's kind of the, the, the council's law. He can decide who gets put into the workhouse. And I thought to myself, maybe that's it. Maybe James John Richardson didn't want his child to be put into the workhouse. To, to, do, do you know in the way that a fox, if you go too near to a vixen and a vixen has her babies there, she will destroy her own children to stop you from killing them or taking them away. I'm wondering, I was wondering if that's the same thing that was happening here. And weird gut reaction. I checked the records. And on the day, literally the day that the day that uh, James John Richardson had murdered his child, at the time that he was taking the child out on a walk to buy it a toy, the beadle of the parish had turned up to take away his son. And that, we can't prove it, but that... I think is what drove him to kill. And that, and that's why you need to that's why I always feel it's important to um to empathize with the characters. But sometimes I try to make you empathize with the killers. Because I, I think it's it's true to say killers people don't start out as murderers. No one wake I mean okay Ian Brady has had bad wiring in his head there was something going on there some people are born with bad wiring in their head but Nielsen started off as such a good promising boy and actually he's quite an intelligent man when you look at his history he's quite an intelligent man very thoughtful very emotional but things went wrong in his early life so in order to appreciate the fact that he was a man who didn't want to kill he's not a violent man but there was some kind of internal, there's some kind of demon inside him that was forcing him to kill and something he had no control over. In order to understand that, you have to understand his life and his background and where he came from. So that that's what makes a good story, really is uh, the personal story, the emotion. I'm going to have another slurp of tea. Oh, it's going cold. Don't like cold tea. Right. How do I research these cases? Because let's not forget these. Most of these are untold, unsolved and long forgotten murder cases. Um, this makes it very hard. Um, because quite often there's not a lot of uh, press reports. Uh, I try not to use uh, newspapers. Because they tend to be full of bullshit. They really are. They're absolutely full of bullshit. If you were to try this at home, if there's an interesting murder case happening at the moment, go online, get 20 different newspaper articles to do with that same case, put them side by side, and then mark off the similarities. And what you'll realise is, out of these 20, probably only one of these journalists actually went to the scene. The majority of them actually use... Uh, a press release by uh, Associated Press or Reuters. Uh, they get a press release which gives them the bare bones of the case. Uh, and most of them, what they do is they copy big chunks of that press release put and create it into a new article. 
it's absolute bullshit. And then they flesh it out using information that they found on the internet, which, let's be honest, any of us can do. Once in a blue moon, you do get some really good investigative journalists. Um, they are a blessing when they come around. Um, but I'm going to be honest, they're few and far between. So the way I try to do my research is uh, through the National Archives. National Archives is great. Uh, it's a repository for... Um, uh, America's got one. I think we, we've got one. It's a great place where, especially if you're doing murder cases... When the police have finished with uh, the court, uh, they've been through the court case, court case is all dealt with, they've got their full police file, um, they hand it into the National Archives. It normally gets put away for about 50 years, 60 years, sometimes 100 years. In the case of Dennis Nielsen, that case is not coming out until 2084, <gasps> of which I'll be 107 years old, I think. Yeah. Um, so... Um, National Archives, really amazing. What you get is, uh, I explain it in episode eight, the Ginger Ray episode. Um, that was all National Archives. You get the original file. It's full of original police memos, original witness statements, all typed or sometimes handwritten. Uh, fingerprints, crime scene photos, autopsy reports, literally everything you could want. The problem is it, 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 there's so much information it's hard to get your head around. So it takes weeks just to really work out what the case is about. But that's what I love about it. So so with Ginger Ray, the, t the first two-parter that we did, which was episodes eight and nine. Now, uh, that was about, for those who haven't heard that episode, please do check it out. It's really good. It's about uh, a prostitute called Rachel Annie Fennick, alias Ginger Ray. Now... When you tend to investigate murders to do with prostitutes, they tend to have a kind of a quite a sad life. Do you know, they're probably raised in 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 poverty. Uh, Dutch Dutch Leia episode four is a prime example. Raised in poverty, mother was a pro an alcoholic prostitute. Dutch Leia was raised. She became a prostitute age twelve. She started drinking. She was a prostitute in order to fund her alcoholism. It's just a life of perpetual misery, just misery and misery. It was really horrible. Whereas with Ginger Ray, that was a revelation for me. That whole case, literally sitting there and going through the case, I was expecting to see a sex worker who I've been forced into sex working or whatever. But really, what I discovered was a really sweet lady, really sweet, really lovely, with a big heart, who would, you know, she became a prostitute as a way to kind of fund her lifestyle. She she wasn't married. She was for a bit her husband. She was a widow, actually. Um, don't forget, this was during post-World War One and during World War II. Uh, impossible. You needed money. Uh, women at that time, if they were uneducated, you had a choice of factory work or being a chambermaid, which meant working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, slogging your guts out for very little money. Whereas she decided to become a prostitute because she would be her own woman. She could organise her own money, decide her own price, prices, and she'd only have to work a couple of hours a night. Literally, in fact, in the evenings, I think she would do eight I think it was half seven or eight until about ten. And then she'd go out with her friends. She'd see like five or six customers. She had a flat nearby. She'd do that and then she'd go out and have fun. And she had loads of boyfriends and she really loved her, loved her life. And it was such a heartwarming story. It was really a beautiful way of learning more about this woman's life. Um, which is why it became a two-part episode. Uh but also in that two-part episode, I'd heard things about Dutch Leia before. I'd never heard about how lovely she was. Obviously, newspapers don't report about that. But all they'd reported was that an unknown person had murdered her. They they associated it with a, a guy called Soho Jack, who's uh, a murderer who uh, we will discuss later in another episode. He... Um, he supposedly murders, murdered Margaret Cook from episode 11. No, episode 13. He murdered Margaret Cook from... Supposedly mar murdered... He supposedly murdered Margaret Cook from episode 13. Uh, as well as Helen Friedman, who's known as Russian Dora. 
and Black Rita. These are all murders that happened within the same area. Um, but what they didn't go into was the truth about the case. And this is what I found in the National Archives files was one that one of the suspects looked exactly like uh, one of the Messina brothers who were one of the key pimps in London at that time. If that's in episode eight and nine, really do check it out. Or another guy called Jeffrey Alexander Haig, who was a 39 year old civil servant who, interestingly, on the night that Ginger Ray was murdered, he was found on Piccadilly, drenched in blood, drunk, couldn't remember where he was, woke up a couple of hours later in bed with a prostitute. And yet the police said, this is because he's upper class and a civil servant, he was a man of good character and they let him go. So I'm going to dig more into that case soon. Uh, I'm going to try and find out more about Jeffrey Alexander Haig and see see uh, see if I can resolve the case of Ginger Ray. But that's really that's really how I uh, try to uh, research these cases. Um, another way that I do it, it's it's really important for me, is I actually visit the locations. It, that's often hard to do if you're um, if you live hundreds of miles away but that's why I do murder mile in the west end because on the canal boat I'm pretty much near to the west end I'm in town every week so when I say I'm today I'm standing outside this building I really am standing there I literally do stand there with my notebook making my notes looking at the building trying to give you a visual example uh, a visual image of what it's like but also it's important for me because if Say, for example, you've just had episodes 18 and 19, the Nora Upchurch episodes. We discussed about how Frederick Field went to various places. He walked from uh, Great Pulteney Street to the empty shopper on 177 Shaftesbury Avenue. Then he met uh, the Plus Fours man on Piccadilly. He walked over to Leicester Square where he met uh, Nora Upchurch outside number seven Bear Street and then walked with her to 177 Shaftesbury Avenue I walked all that and that's what I love is that when the details on the paperwork when it says Nora Upchurch and Frederick Field walked from 7 Bear Street to 177 Shaftesbury Avenue on paper it looks short because it's a short sentence but when you walk it you realise hang on this is a 20 minute walk also, to get there, he has to walk past some of the busiest parts of the West End, which at that time of night would have been heaving with people. So why would a murderer want to walk through the busy streets of London with his potential victim? It just doesn't make sense. But for these murder cases, for, for Murder Mile, I find it absolutely invaluable because it, 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 it makes everything real if you can really visualise it and smell it and, and, the, and the timings work. Um, so, a cup of tea. More cup of tea. How do I record Murder Mile? Well, it's not in a studio. As I mentioned, it's on my canal boat. Um, why? Why do I do pre-recorded anim Why do I do pre-recorded narration instead of, like most true crime podcasts, where they do a kind of back and forth chat? Firstly. Uh, I'm not very good at chat. I waffle. Uh, as you can probably hear right now, I, I stumble over my words. I'm all over the shop. Uh, second, I love storytelling. As we've discussed, I love being able to tell you a full story and then really play with the, the uh, tension and the suspense and really enjoy it. Um, thirdly, and this is more important, uh, I have dyslexia, uh, which I discovered when I was about 17. Um, actually no it was actually my drama tutor worked it out um, and the problem is um, I'm okay now kind of talking to you but when I try to read things my dyslexia kicks in and I stutter I stumble over my words really badly and as a prime example here's a piece I've taken of the original recording from episode 20 the Alexander Litvinenko episode here you go and with both men and with both men accentuating their look with brightly coloured shirts, garish ties, day glow socks, and wrist 
and a wrist-jangling assortment of chunky gold chains, bracelets, and a wrist and a wrist-jangling assortment of chunky gold chains, bracelets, bracelets, and and sovereign rings. Their uns their uns oh, come on, Michael. Their unsubtle attire was so shocking and eye-wateringly gaudy that it caused the hotel staff to chuckle. So yeah, not good. And that's just a, that's a, a, a standard piece of uh, the narration. So originally what my plan was going to be was I was going to stand in the street. So saying on uh, Denmark Place Fire, I would, and you hear me go, today I'm standing on Denmark Street. Um, that was my plan. I did actually try it. But the problem is because I'm easily distracted and I'm dyslexic and I was stumbling over my words, it makes it hard to edit. If you've got like trucks going past and sirens and almost impossible to do. And a half an hour script, literally, it takes me two hours. And then it takes me in, it takes me two hours to say the words. And then it'll take me three hours to edit that on top. And sometimes I have to edit in the middle of a word. But that actually made for a, a that actually became quite useful. So because I was, because I was, record, that actually became really useful because I was recording this on my boat. And what I really wanted you to do was to experience the, the street, the sounds of the street and everything that's going on and people passing and talking. I realised, okay, how am I going to bring this to you? I want you to feel like you're there with me. So that's what I started doing was going out onto those streets with my phone. Uh, so when I say today I'm on Denmark Street, I really am on Denmark Street. I'm really there. I'm there with my phone. I'm recording sounds. I'm recording people walking back and forth if there's rain there's chat i'm going to play a little bit now you'll hear a little bit of sound underneath this this will be uh from denmark street and this literally was me going in and out of different music shops um and although this isn't how it originally sound this is kind of like a best of track because what i realized is is that you can't sum up the history of a street in a couple of seconds just by recording direct you've got to kind of piece it together and make a best of track so like if i say you know uh, uh this construction on the street i can put in a, a construction sound it might have happened a week later but it kind of gives you an idea of what the streets are about um but yeah so if, if you live in, if you live so if you live in london uh you've probably appeared in a murder mile you might not know it but i'm always walking around with my phone out uh my ears have become very finely tuned to picking up sounds uh buskers have been very useful i record a lot of buskers i record chat sirens dogs barking birds twittering uh tube trains everything i just record stuff all the time that i think might be good on on uh, murder mile and when I'm writing the, the the list, the script, I keep a big list of all the sounds that I want to want to use. Um, some of which have never been used fully because I just don't know where to use them. Really, there's there's one guy who I heard once who was torturing the song "Comfortably Numb" by Pink Floyd, one of my favourite songs, and it's recorded on my phone as Pink Floyd Murderer. Um, and I don't think I've put it into an episode yet because I, I just don't know where to put it. I really don't. Um, so how did I choose the mur? How did I? Uh, how did I choose the music for Murder Mile? That was really simple. Uh, as I mentioned before, I've done a couple of play. Oops. As I mentioned before, I did, did a couple of plays at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, so that was two thousand and nine. Was my first one. I'd become friends with two guys called John Books and Eric Stein. Um, they are in a band called Cult With No Name. It's a fantastic two-piece band. It's just the two of them. But amazingly, they churn out a, a new album every year. And it's always excellent. I love their stuff. I'm a big fan of their music. They did the music for my first couple of shows at the Edinburgh Fringe. So it just made perfect sense. I called them up and their music really does fit the theme and the tone and because a lot of their music is about you know, unrequited love and loss and things like that and you know I, I kind of just love it so a lot of the main themes are from Cult With No Name um, when you listen to the intro music 
the first song you will hear um, as we play each episode I'm going to play it underneath here this is a song called Win Some Lose Some it's one of the tracks of their latest current album called uh, Air of the Dog Air of the Dog yeah Air of the Dog um, and then this track which I like to think of as the Murder Mile theme tune is from a song from the same album called Man in a Bag quite an interesting song I'm not too sure what it's about <laughs> But I, I do. It feels like it's 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 a song about a man who's who's had a really sad life and he's dead, and now he's being zipped up by um, by the police. I think I'm not too sure. Anyway, Cult with No Name are amazing. Um, I kind of use their music from different albums, such as Air of the Dog, Another Landing, and they did the soundtrack to the uh, very early German expressionist horror film called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. All fantastic stuff. Brilliant. So uh, I'm hoping that has given you a good insight into Murder Mile and what it's all about and things like that. Um, next week's episode, again, will be something very different. Um, what I'll be, what I'll do is I'll be giving you an update on the research that I'm doing in the National Archives. Uh, I'll tell you what I, I'm thinking about the cases that we're planning for episodes 21 to 40. There's going to be some big ones coming up. We've got some, we've got some more serial killers. We've got mass murderers. We've got poisoners. We've got a bungled abortionists. We've got some really amazing stuff that I'll be researching. What I will be doing as well is doing listeners' questions. So if you have any questions, feel free to uh, direct message me on Twitter or come to the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast discussion group on Facebook. You can message me any questions on there at all. And I think I might do a competition as well. I think I might do. I don't know. Maybe some badges, maybe a mug. <gasps> maybe I can give away a Murder Mile t-shirt, of which there is only one currently in existence. <gasps> Very exciting. So uh, we'll see you next week for that. Before I go, I know that I always talk about new podcasts and things like that. I thought I'd do you a list of the podcasts that I can't live without. They're not true not true crime podcasts, to be honest, most of them. Uh, but what they are are podcasts that I absolutely adore and they just keep me going. So if you're looking for something different, this give these a go. This is what I recommend. The Bugle. Uh, a weekly satirical podcast with comedian Andy Zaltzman. One of my go-to podcasts. I absolutely love it. Love it. If you love satire, go for The Bugle. My other new one I absolutely love is called Attaboy Clarence. It's created by a guy called Adam Roche, who's absolutely, absolutely loves uh, old-time movies. So movies from 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, but also old-time radio as well. He's really good fun. It's very uplifting. I absolutely love it. It's one of my go-to things. And you get a nice radio play at the end as well, which is always good. Like he'll do the original version of War of the Worlds. So nice to hear things like that. Adam also does another series called The Secret History of Hollywood, where he will literally over three episodes in a 10-hour podcast, he will tell you the whole history of people like Warner Brothers. But it's done in a really beautiful way. It's really nicely presented. He plays all of the voices. It's scripted. It's, oh, it's beautiful. It's like a Christmas treat. Um... Slow Burn is really good if you're interested in Watergate scandal. That's excellent. There's also a podcast called uh, Transmissions from Jonestown, which is about the Jonestown Massacre. I think it's like an eight one-hour episode. So very well, very well done. If you're looking for something uplifting, I go for uh, Hollywood Babylon, which is kind of a weekly Hollywood news update. It's really good fun. It's got Kevin Smith and Ralph Garman. It's got impressions in it. It's got silliness. It's good fun. More silliness. My dad wrote a porno. I don't think there's anyone out there who hasn't given my dad wrote a porno a try. Um, I think I've done three seasons. Go back to the first season. Start at the, start at the, the beginning. It's good fun. Ear Hustle. Uh, podcast created by a prisoner in San Quentin prison. It really is a great insight into prisoners and their lives. That's really good as well. <gasps> right. So before we go, 
the Murder Mile Recommended Podcast of the Week. This week is called Murderous Miners. It's a new podcast. I've just started listening to it. Uh, really enjoying it. I think what makes it fascinating and terrifying is the fa- fact that this is about children who kill. You always think of children as being nice and sweet and, you know, they can be a bit annoying, but basically they do as they're told. But this is about children who step over the line, who step over the line into murdering other children, and maybe even their parents as well. Fascinating series. It's out every Monday. Uh, this is a quick promo for it. Have a listen. This is Murderous Miners, Killer Kids, bringing you the frightening and truly insane tales of children with the thirst to kill. Kindergarten through 12th grade murderers. True stories thoroughly researched. Join us weekly for new tales of parents' worst nightmares on Murderous Miners, Killer Kids. Great. So that was our first extra mile. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope it was something different. What I try to do with these episodes is make them all very different, which is why we have different murder styles each week, different eras. I I think we... I might start trying to do one of these every so often. So once every 10 or 15 episodes, uh, we'll do another Murder Mile Extra. If you want to send me any questions, please do. Email me or use the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast discussion group. Uh, Failing that... I hope you enjoy the rest of the series. There's going to be some great murders coming up. Have yourself a lovely week. Don't get murdered. And I'll see you all soon. I won't see you soon because I've never met you. Um, Hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.